0: Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, wherever you are. This is really a pleasure. We have Diana Gabaldon I'm over here holding the book, which which is revenge because it's almost as big as an Outlander book. So let her find out how hard it is to actually pick one up and read it. Yay. And our guest this evening is John Sales, the notable film director. So let me just say a few words about him. Um, aside from the fact that he and I were born 10 years apart, not in my favor. Uh, he's an American independent film director, screenwriter, editor, actor, and novelist, twice been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Passion Fish and Lone Star. His film, Men with Guns, was nominated for the Golden Globe Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. His directorial debut, Return of Seacocco 7, has been added to the National Film Register, and he's the author of several novels. I have to ask you, John, did you ever go to the MoMA Film Department? Were you ever involved with MoMA at all?
1: Um, we our first movie played at the um their new directors festival. And that helped it get a distributor. That's um, wonderful. So, but that's really the only kind of contact we had with <laughs> was them.
0: it. My sister Mary Lee Bandy was actually the director of the film department uh-huh. at MoMA, up oh. until up yeah. until she died. So it was really um a wonderful experience to go there and
1: talk
0: to famous people, but so we are. There's always a big
1: event during the year.
0: So I probably don't need to introduce anybody to Diana watching this, but I will say that she is the author of the Outlander series, which um, has nine big novels and numerous other sort of offshoot things. And theoretically, she's working on the 10th novel. And possibly, I would be if I weren't here, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Her. She'd be home during that and possibly other work. So it's always a pleasure to hear from her and catch up on things. Um, and I did want to say that, let me pick up the book again, that here we are, Jamie McGillivray. We actually sold out of all the signed copies that we sent to John, um, but we are offering it to anybody who orders it for the next month at a 10% discount so sorry about that but you know right. um thank you very much for agreeing to sign our books and we yeah. appreciate it so diana over to you i'll scoot okay. out of the way
2: okay great uh-huh.
3: well lovely to see you see i need to i should be sitting on your book rather than holding it up <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, I, a uh, I might, yeah. do we have anything similar no. just so i'm not you know crouching under your armpit through the whole conversation
0: so
3: then we have questions Fortunately, since we're not exactly well, we
2: are live more or less, but I don't think we've started officially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've we are live. we are live? Okay. Are are live? okay. We're live yeah. In, yeah. in that case, we are
3: pausing for something for me to sit on. So I will be yeah. a little <laughs> higher. This chair adjusts only so far. And uh, it's not entirely that I'm short. The monitor is, in fact, set up on a on a shelf. But uh, I am short. You
0: know.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry. Yeah, I'll just be short. It's not a problem.
1: <laughs> anyway. So, uh, so I, I have a question for you, Diana. Oh, yeah. When you started, um, you had a background in science more than uh-huh. in history, which I, I also, I, I got to go to college and I never took a history class and no, kind me of only got interested in later when I started writing stories Mm. set in history um were you finding your way with your first I know know it was kind of you know planned as a trilogy eventually were you finding your way with the research (laughs) leading you (laughs) or did you kind of say okay I'm going to bite off this chunk of history and my characters are going to move around within it
3: no, not even that. It was much more ad hoc than you might think. Essentially, I just wanted to learn to write a novel. And I uh-huh. said, well, the easiest way to do that is to actually write a novel. And then I was uh-huh. what goes into it? So the next question was, what kind of novel shall I write? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've got no background in anything in particular. And so I thought about it and I said, well, what's the easiest thing to write? So, well, for me, maybe historical fiction. I was Mm -hmm. a research professor. I had access to the entire international library loan system, as well uh, as a fairly large university library. I said, if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record. And, you know, I can look up anything I need to. So this seems the easiest way to proceed. So that's why it's historical fiction. It's just because Uh, that was the easiest thing to do. So that's the next question. Did you know much of
1: the history? Did you know much of the history of the... uh you know, and Charlie and all that when you started?
3: No, none, Mm -hmm. no. And that was my first question for you is, why did you choose Scotland? Have you got personal ties or
1: or no? I had this 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 story kind of landed in my lap Um, over 20 years ago. um, The Scots actor, Robert Carlyle, who I had not met, called me up out of the blue. Somebody had recommended me as a screenwriter. And he said, I have this idea about a a Highland Scot who is you know, part of the Jacobite cause, he's defeated at the Battle of Culloden. And instead of hanging him, the English decide, oh, we'll just transport him to the new world, basically as a slave.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: mm-hmm. then after that, he gets involved with the, the Indian tribes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really liked the idea and wrote a screenplay based on it, okay. um, which we um, which we basically, Tried for several years to to find the financing for, and never quite did. Uh, we had the fun of of going to the highlands of Scotland and scouting for the movie with Robert Carlyle, which uh-huh. you can imagine opened a lot of doors for us. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then going back down to kind of the Georgia Florida area that was the old um, Georgia penal colony, uh-huh. going up to Canada. Um, finding some first growth forest there, uh, going into Pennsylvania, the places where um, the the French and Indian War kind of played out um, mm-hmm. in, in, in Jamie McGillivray. Um, so I had this kind of, I had the visuals of the actual places, mm-hmm. I had started to read a lot of the history, I'd written the screenplay, and then it just kind of sat for 20 years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I felt like you know, and I, I had started as a novelist. I, I just felt like it's such a good story. Yeah, I can't just leave it there.
3: Oh, absolutely you know? not. Yeah, no. You had a real advantage being able to go and see all of the places and uh, you yeah. know, walk battlefields and things like that. I love. Have you
1: gotten, Have through. you gotten to do that since you started into these?
3: Well, yes, but not till the middle of my second book. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I got lucky in many, uh, many dimensions. And um, my agent sold my first novel on a three book contract. Mm-hmm. So I said to my husband, well, I think I really must go to Scotland and see the place. Yeah. So we uh, parked the kids with my parents for about uh, two weeks, went, rented a car, drove all the way up the British Isles and around Scotland. Uh-huh. and uh, acquired a reasonable gaelic dictionary i had a very small one to start with now i've got yeah. one like
2: that <laughs> so, yes.
3: uh yeah so i found you know everything i could get my hands on in two weeks time in scotland uh-huh. and after that you know uh when we actually began to make serious money from the books it became much easier to travel and see things right. but as i say i had uh i had libraries i could find out pretty yeah. much anything i needed to know
1: yeah i i find um since uh there is Google. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't believe anything I read on Google. Um, because <laughs> a lot of pretty, pretty polluted information, uh-huh. but it helps you find the books. It does, yes need, exactly right. You know? uh-huh. Um and every once in a while just come, something comes out of the blue
2: mm-hmm. and you
1: realize, oh, there there are, you know, um transcripts of the trial of Lord Lovett.
2: Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's some of that
1: mm-hmm. verbatim and Jamie got uh, Yeah. I, yeah, got I like some, that part especially. <laughs> Yeah, I got some of the um, uh, ship's logs um, from the, they were mostly um, out of Liverpool, these ships that were slavers sometimes Mm -hmm. and also transported prisoners to the new world and indentured servants Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: um, stumbled on this thing that one of the ships carrying the uh, Jacobite prisoners, including some women um, was taken by a, a French, um privateer and the people were liberated on the island of mm-hmm. martinique mm-hmm. they have been wondering how wondering how i was going to get this one character jenny over to the new world and then i realized well she's got to meet a french lieutenant there mm-hmm. you know that's mm-hmm. kind of absolutely <laughs> you, you can't hang out in martinique without that happening and that just opened up you know probably 200 pages of the book easily yeah uh-huh. um, well, have you different. have you had those experiences where just time, something yeah. makes, No, when you uh, start
3: looking for stuff it comes and finds you, you know, yeah it really does and you find stuff you never imagined looking for it's just you know uh-huh. it pops up if you're if you're look, out looking stuff is going to come
1: yeah your antenna are out for for mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. there is that's gonna yeah, and it, it know, seems to you. attract you know information uh-huh.
3: of that sort you know, I started doing this before there was an internet. I was mm-hmm. like 1984, I think, when I yeah. started doing this. and uh, But I hung around with a small group called the Literary Forum on CompuServe. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. I think you are barely a year older than I am. So you probably yeah. remember that in those days, Genie yeah. Delphi and CompuServe, as all, all right. there was, <laughs> other than yeah. DARPANET and those things. Yeah. But to, because of that, uh, I wasn't gonna tell anybody what I was doing to start with, but I posted a small piece of what I was writing in order to win an argument with a man about what it feels like to be pregnant. And that uh-huh. <laughs> it attracted a lot of attention and people started getting interested in what I was doing. And so uh-huh. they would bring me little tidbits of information and say, oh, I found a great Scottish word for you. Have you ever heard of mule? And I said, uh-huh. uh, not lately, what do you say? Yeah, what and is it's, that? Uh, it's grave dirt, you know, and I was thinking, well, I must find some places to pick that in. Uh-huh. But as I say, stuff comes and finds you, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting thing that, um one of the things that you're juggling is because one of your main characters is actually from, from mm-hmm. 1945. Yeah. Then she's meeting women from 200 years earlier, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. their minds work differently. Exactly. Well, that's um, that, one of the most interesting parts. And it's yeah. not just, you know, well, she knows how the story turns out as far as the Battle of Culloden, <laughs> for instance, but um, uh, that she's, she comes in with the medical knowledge that a nurse would have in 1945, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which still isn't terrific. I mean, antibiotics are just starting to get used then. (laughs) Exactly. Compared to what passed for medicine in the, in the 1700s, it's Mm -hmm. hugely different. Um, Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, there's the three um, pillars of modern medicine, which are anesthesia, antisepsis, and antibiotics. And uh, with those in hand, you know, uh, it's enough of a connection for modern readers to identify with her so to speak and that's mm-hmm. what i wanted i did not want her to be you know from the 1980s or 90s because medicine was just picking up a very technological bent at that point right. i didn't want someone who said oh, come across a wounded man and say oh i wish i could put this man through an mri you yeah. want someone who will fall to her knees and start putting him back together yeah but, yeah i thought you did a really good job with the with the mindset of the 18th century th- moving through it, the it's also classes. that, that-
1: a a lot of what you deal with and i deal with with the character of of jenny is that survival for a woman
2: Mm.
1: now (laughs) but especially (laughs) then was such a different thing than survival for a man there Mm -hmm. there are so few uh situations a woman can be in where she doesn't have to look for some kind of protector Mm -hmm. just to you know only fight on two fronts instead of five exactly (laughs) um it's it's um you know, that mindset um, of of a woman in those days of um, what the restrictions were, Mm
2: -hmm. and they
1: Mm -hmm. depended on class as well as Mm -hmm. just Mm being a woman or a man, but what what those restrictions were, um, I'm sure that most women just kind of, well, that's the way the world works. And then there were some who Mm -hmm. pushed against them when they had Mm -hmm. to or felt like it.
3: And some of them were smart enough to get around them, you know, uh-huh. or sufficiently attractive as to acquire a really powerful male, and yeah. then you had a lot more scope. You know, look at Nell Gwyn, for instance. But, uh, but yes, you're right. It is did, and to a large extent, still does come down to how attractive you are, whether mm-hmm. that's you know entirely physical or physical and mental. Um, yeah. There's a little more scope, or, or
1: economic. If you if you economic, if yeah. you're going to inherit a lot of money,
3: mm-hmm. you
1: immediately well, get a lot that's, more. That's a two-edged profit. sword. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when, when, when you finished your, your trilogy, did you know you were going to, to, to keep going with the the books?
3: Yeah. I've got to say that I don't plan nearly as much as you do. Uh Uh, As I say, I started out uh, just wanting to write a, write a novel and I don't outline, I don't write in a straight line. I write where Mm -hmm. I can see things happening and I glue them together. Uh and uh, and so that's what I did and by the time I had finished the first book I knew there was more to the story and so Uh I told my agent I said I know there's more to the story if anybody's interested tell them I thought I should stop while I could still lift it you know but but we can't Uh go on and so they gave me a three book contract because trilogies Uh were popular had no idea Uh what was going to happen in the second and third book but as Uh I got in the middle of the third I could see there was more so I told them that gave me Uh another three books and after that they quit asking they just said
1: yeah Yeah. whatever you want to write (laughs) Because I started in, in uh, uh, I was very young, I started in 1975 writing books. I remember when there was a pile of finished pages growing mm-hmm. and growing and growing. So mm-hmm. you had an idea about how long your book was. Mm-hmm. Now that I write on a computer and I often, you know, break it up into sections, uh-huh. I really don't count until I feel like the book is over. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it's either this, oh my God. <laughs> really long. Yes, or, oh, this it, yeah, it kind handed. of
3: encourages you to be free in yeah. your writing. But you yeah. know, for this kind of book, you know, which is essentially a you know like a Russian doll full of stories, you know, one after yeah. another after another, uh which is one of its great charms. Oh, uh, you know that uh, that's easy to do, or easier to do when you have a computer and you have all the pieces here. You yeah, just go, eh. <laughs>
1: stick them together.
3: Yes. Now, do you I, outline at all when you uh, when you work?
1: You know, I I. Uh, what I have is I have the, what happened in the history. So uh-huh. you know, this, mm-hmm. this is a book that starts the Battle of Culloden mm-hmm. and ends at mm-hmm. the Battle of Quebec.
2: Yeah, And I have nice the history. Yeah.
1: And then every once in a while I go someplace that I wasn't planning on. I said, well, mm-hmm. what was going on there at that uh-huh. time? But that's really it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I kind of had an idea of, in the screenplay anyway, what the characters were going to go through, these yeah. various mm-hmm. personas they have to adapt in order mm-hmm. to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or that they choose to adapt. I mean, mm-hmm. Jamie gets, you know, at some point he he becomes a valuable translator for the Lenny Lenape Indians, and um, they they want his opinion on whether they should go with the French or the English mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. what we call the French and Indian War, and he hates the English,
2: you know, so, well, of course, for good reason. Yes,
1: <laughs> You know, and 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 it's good advice for the first two years of the war, and then not so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and and one of the things that i i um i saw in in in, in your first couple books um that is very kind of common in to, to to Jamie McGillivray is that there's an awful lot of because of the complexity of the politics mm-hmm. um, it wasn't just a catholic and protestant thing oh, no. in fact <laughs> you know there were more protestants fighting for you know Bonnie Prince Charlie than there were catholics as it turned right.
2: out mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um there's an awful lot of switching of sides and loyalties, and just mm-hmm. deciding where should my loyalties go? Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does my heart go? Where does my what makes the most sense for me? Mm-hmm. So that um, I, I feel like in your work, personal loyalty finally becomes the one thing that people can mm-hmm. hold on to it.
0: Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. What about clan loyalty? because that's much stronger perhaps Mm -hmm. with the
1: scots i think i think originally with with the people who who you know got involved um you very much like in the american south during the civil war there were so many people who would just as well i'm a a south carolinian Mm
2: -hmm. and that
1: that loyalty to the colony almost or the state you know superseded all other loyalties and the Mm -hmm. clan loyalties to this day i think of a lot of our our political polarization is tribal. Yes. (laughs) Um, It is just, you know, I live here. This is what my friends think. Mm -hmm. I got to go that way. I think so. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, I don't want to be an outcast. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, Um, exactly. Well, that goes back as far as humans do, I'm afraid. And it's not going to change anytime soon. But yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) There's this interesting thing that uh, I I ran into in, in one of my other novels, A Moment in the Sun, which is how much of the kind of southern myth of the southern cavaliers and Mm. and all the way to the kkk came out of sir walter scott Ah. Um, (laughs) that they 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 love those novels they Mm love the idea of themselves as these Mm -hmm. you know romantic rebels who had a Mm -hmm. lost cause Mm -hmm. uh to the point where the the stars and the bars, that flag. Yes, the St. Andrew's fire yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not the the other Christian exactly. cross, mm-hmm. and the and the burning cross to you mm-hmm. know gather the clan and all those things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. Not not particularly useful in the long run in some ways, <laughs> but it's interesting oh. how but they the is very, good, very yeah, popular. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That romantic idea of themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Totally. So so. I, I'm I'm always interested in this thing of um, I adapted uh, Jean Owl's first two books, uh-huh. Playing at the Cave Bear and Valley of the Horses, as movies, uh-huh. and they only made the first one. Mm-hmm. But she always said that she she woke up from a very long dream mm-hmm. and then wrote like a hundred pages of just plot. Wow. That became those. (laughs) I've never had that happen. No, (laughs) never. (laughs) It would be nice if it would. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in this idea that um, you have these characters and the ones who have survived from the last book,
2: Mm -hmm. you then have
1: to say, and and you have time travel to play with as well. Well, that helps. Where am (laughs) I going to put them? What's happening? Uh And then what, what seems to happen is things get really complicated really quickly.
3: Yes, they do. (laughs) But, you know, life and history are both like that, which Uh is another question. You know, how do you find your way through the maze? How do you decide which historical characters you want to use, for instance? Because Uh the 18th century certainly had a prolificity of them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Now, as you know, a
3: clear one. You definitely want him, but who else? Yeah,
1: Uh one thing you realize is that there were fewer people around. True, And Uh that um, probably if you were somehow involved in the, the lead up to the French and Indian war, you're gonna run into George Washington. Uh You just are, you Mm -hmm. know. If you're on the scene in London, um, uh, Fielding is gonna write about you. Mm-hmm. And I if you're at all a celebrity or notorious in anywhere, mm-hmm. Hogarth is going to draw a picture. A
3: picture <laughs> I love it. the one—the uh, scene where he, where Hogarth is interviewing yeah. Lord Lovett, and uh, and you caught the uh, the etching of him just exactly. Oh right.
1: yeah, it's an incredible yeah. picture because yeah. you you realize when you you read the descriptions of Lord Lovett, that's not a caricature. He no. really did look like a jack o' lantern, you know, on this <laughs> body that's as wide as it is tall. Large
3: toad, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and oh, wow.
1: uh, and 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 he looks devilish in in mm-hmm. the picture he captured. Oh, he that.
3: was, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah,
1: he Yeah, I surprised. mean, he's a, he's a character <laughs> in himself. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you some of it really is. Um, if if you're going to do this history, you're going to run into some of these people. Mm-hmm. Some of them are were celebrities in their time, and, mm-hmm. and we still mm-hmm. know they who they are. And then there's some of them like Shingas, who was mm-hmm. known at that time as Shingas the Terrible. Once he started mm-hmm. raiding, you know, white yeah. settlements uh, in, in in what's now Pennsylvania, um, who really isn't that known today, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but at the time was like this this boogeyman, this, oh, mm-hmm. God, Chinggis the Terrible is like mm-hmm. a Taliban or something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, the, what I could find out about him is he was he was a very reluctant chief. The yeah. English were always looking for somebody. And he had two older brothers who were more likely to become the next chief of the mm-hmm. of the Delaware Indians. And they figured, well, those guys are a little too sharp. Yeah. Um, this younger <laughs> was guy was <laughs> more tractable and they made a mistake, you yes, know, but he always resented being named the king when he wasn't even at the meeting.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And those are kind of fascinating characters because mm-hmm. you have this much mm-hmm. and then you realize, well, I've got to extrapolate from that. Yeah, and who exactly. else can this person be? So are a lot of your characters who are not necessarily um, historical characters based on historical characters or composites no, of them?
3: No, not for the most part. Yeah, for me, um, characters are either what I call mushrooms, onions, or hard nuts. Mushrooms uh, are the ones who just pop up out of nowhere and walk off uh, with the scene they're in. And those, of course, are great, but they have no connection with uh, no. reality, you might say, or history. And uh, the onions are people whose uh, essence I apprehend immediately but the more I Uh, work with them the more rounded and pungent and more layers they get and those uh, would be Jamie and Claire you know I've been working with them for years and years and uh, I know them in detail and then the hard nuts are often the historical characters because these are people who don't originate with me they have an actual external being and I need to find out what that is and you know if they were the sort of historical people who wrote things like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin then it's easy because you know who they were but without that yeah as you you have to dig quite a bit and extrapolate from that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I find that uh, diaries and letters mm. hugely, you know, wh- whether they're from famous people or not famous people, oh, no. because they're somewhat unguarded. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. Occasionally, you can tell when it's a soldier writing home to his mom that it's mm-hmm. a lot worse than he's saying,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: then they might write, write home to another friend and and <laughs> really come out with, oh, this is just awful, what's going yeah. on?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and and Washington does let his hair down in in a lot of his letters
2: Mm -hmm. um, and
1: you kind of get a picture of that this young very ambitious guy that he was who thinks he knows more about the Indians and how their politics work than than Mm -hmm. he actually does and that gets Mm -hmm. him and a lot of other people into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm interested in in a hundred years from now Are people gonna be looking for tweets? What what are they gonna have instead of those letters that people used to write? Exactly. How do they find them?
3: Well, there's always email and things like that.
1: Yeah, if if you (laughs) haven't destroyed it, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. if it, you know, maybe they'll stumble on it. They'll be mining the cloud, Mm -hmm. you know, for Mm -hmm. for things that people Mm -hmm. didn't ever hope uh, to have read. You know, Mm -hmm. there are people who, um, when they die, they just say, "Burn all my letters, burn all my." I can see why, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, I don't. Some (laughs) cases,
3: yeah, or they just, or
1: they just want, you know, I want the version that was around when Mm -hmm. I was around to be there, and I don't Mm -hmm. want anybody making something up new Mm -hmm. out of the. I can see that. I left behind. Uh So, so on your on your on your books that diverted, do they have a different tone? Well, yeah. yeah, they
3: do, uh, because they're told from a different point of view. Yeah. Uh, they're mostly the, the Lord John Gray books, and mm-hmm. he's the chief uh, point of view character. Now he yeah. is an 18th century character. You know, it's nothing of time travel, uh, right. but he is. Uh, you know, he's a gentleman. He's the younger son of a noble family. He's yeah. the <laughs> the third son. So no, the second son. So he's in the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, his elder brother is the commander of the regiment, so consequently he gets sent to a lot of places that he didn't expect to be sent to, uh-huh. and, you know, ends up as the temporary governor of Jamaica during a plague mm-hmm. of zombies and, you know, interesting things like that. But uh, so, you know, it's, he's very flexible, but he has a uh, very 18th century point of view aside from mm-hmm. the fact that he is uh, homosexual, which was a capital crime. So he uh-huh. always lives with this constant conflict that if anybody ever finds out what he is, you know, he'll be dead and his family will be disgraced. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, him a sort of constant, you know, edge of tension. Yeah. At the same time, he's got a good sense of humor.
1: <laughs> I find it interesting uh, writing as an American to delve mm-hmm. into class in mm-hmm. England mm-hmm. and Scotland, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: w- which we have a we have a notion from the movies of Mm
2: -hmm. clothing
1: Mm -hmm. and accents and things like that but it goes so much
2: deeper than that
1: um just um just that idea that uh you know if you if you were below a certain class you couldn't just go from one village to another or just (laughs) you know you had to have a pass from Mm -hmm. somebody Mm -hmm. above you who said yeah this person has a reason to go there and they're allowed to go um it it is a it's like a mental um to me like a mental geography, yeah. that a person of a certain class mm-hmm. has a much bigger world whether mm-hmm. they're they are allowed to exist in than somebody of sure. a smaller class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that some of the explanation for the new world and what Europe you know, brought to the new world was there were an awful lot of people saying, look at all the room here. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I don't really have telling me what to, do. <laughs> Lord, what's his name, you know, breathing on my shoulder. And uh-huh. it didn't take long for those many of them born in, in, in Britain uh, mm-hmm. colonists to say, well, maybe we could get rid of those guys mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we could be the classy people here, or at least uh-huh. we could be the people who don't have to worry about what they say about us.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. Yeah, absolutely fascinating time of history, you know, the 18th century, because everything kind of broke apart at that point, owing, you know, in in large part to politics and also increasing ease of travel and, uh, you know, as you say, open frontiers. (laughs) Do uh-huh. you read uh, 18th century novels much, or have you? I should say.
1: You know, I started to when I started writing this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had not read many of them. I'd seen the movies made of, oh, of yeah? some of mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. but I read a bunch of Dickens. I had read some Robert Louis Stevenson, who's often mm-hmm. writing about the the 18th century. Right.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. But
1: I did read uh, a bunch of Fielding and a guy named Tobias Smollett, and yeah. um, some not of even, you know, Fielding yeah. was a a uh, broadside mm-hmm. writer and satirist and a, a major anti-jacobite and ah. <laughs> very anti-catholic and so mm-hmm. read a bunch of his kind of you know before he started writing novels uh stuff mm-hmm. that he he wrote to make a living um and and some of his early plays little bits of them that still exist and that was useful just to, to kind of get a handle on the sense of humor of the time.
2: Mm-hmm, okay.
1: um, Dickens is always interesting. First of all, he's just such a good storyteller. Yeah, exactly. And to imagine this guy often writing in in, in a serial form. Mm-hmm, so he's, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's, well, you see a chapter. Well, it was just do. He had to say yeah. something <laughs> and he's treading water here. You exactly. see that in many series these days. Yeah, let's, you know, get to the cliffhanger and then we'll worry yeah. about the rest. Yeah. And, but also that um, this thing where he describes people's faces. Yeah. And that's a part of their character. Yes, exactly. Just something that you don't see as much in, in modern mm-hmm. fiction mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. That, that, um, uh-huh. that idea that the physiognomy of a person is going to tell you something about their character. Oh,
3: I think
1: um, it does <laughs> well I think if, uh, especially the older you get the more it does mm-hmm, exactly um, so. at, at the life you've la- led mm-hmm, and your mm-hmm. disappointments or how you deal with them you know kind of give you a just a vibe about a person mm-hmm, before exactly them, true. Mm-hmm. To meet them. Um, yeah
3: well you learn to trust your own instincts too the older you get the more yeah. often you're right about people <laughs> yeah
1: um but also that um so many of them um uh, lean heavily on this idea of uh, nobles who, for whatever reason, grow up as common men, and then it's uh. dis- discovered in the last act that they're actually noble. Yeah, <laughs> And I think that some of that was not so much the authors, but that they felt like the audience would not accept this person as a hero, mm-hmm. unless but less in the last act it's proven that, oh, well, He's got pure blood. <laughs> They've got pure blood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mark Twain did it. You know, later on, um, with uh, you know, two kids, one who's mm-hmm. you know they're they, you know one who's really white, yeah, but <laughs> they think is black and and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, which was mm-hmm. the drama of his place and time. It was, mm-hmm. um, and that idea that that blood was character in some mm-hmm. ways. Exactly. Uh Well, that
3: lasted well past Mark Twain. You know, if you watch old Perry Mason uh, episodes on television, which I periodically do, Uh uh, you find that coming up as a plot element, you know, that someone Uh was killed in order to prevent someone else from finding out that the murderer... Uh, was actually the son of the public drunk or something like uh-huh. that, yeah. because then their reputation would be ruined, their life would be ruined and so forth. And it was worth killing somebody in order to suppress uh-huh. the knowledge that you were related to someone uh-huh. with a you know moral defect because they thought the blood was tainted. And that's yeah.
0: when shame actually mattered. Oh, you know, actually,
2: yes, that. Actually, <laughs> Do
0: you mind if I roll in and no, talk to you just a moment? Oh, yeah, come on uh, in. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about geography. I remember mm-hmm. telling Diana before she went to Culloden, because I had been there, what a really sucky place it was to have <laughs> a battle. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a mm-hmm. terrible place, you know, for yeah. it to happen. But I've spent a fair amount of time in Quebec and actually stayed mm-hmm. at the Chateau Frontenac, so you have this gorgeous view. Of the plains of Abraham. And and you can't, I think, really appreciate that battle unless you can see the geography of it. The mm-hmm. fact that the British were able to scale the cliffs and come up and surprise the it, French. It was but, you know, be I don't a... think Americans really know that much about that. You know, it's a major mm-hmm. battle, but not of major import in American history, although it could be. The St. Lawrence, after all, is an enormous northern border. Uh-huh. For our country, and if the French had won,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, our country's history would be would be different too.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I that particular battle, I think, it, except for this, you know, this little, it's almost like uh, the Achilles' heel, mm-hmm. um, where there's this one little weak spot, and mm-hmm. it was a big gamble. I think that would have been one of those awful things where it would have been a draw mm-hmm. otherwise. Wolf probably would have died of a disease before everything he might have been recalled or something because he was making no progress and they were just taking pot shots at each other and costing both, you know, countries a lot of money in in this, you know, kind of proxy war they were doing. Um, at the same time that the more I learned about the French in in uh, La Nouvelle France. Um, they were so corrupt, the people who were running it. Um, They were stealing so much from their own people, Mm -hmm. from their own soldiers especially, Mm -hmm. that the French soldiers were badly equipped, badly fed. And when you get that kind of situation, it's a lot easier to say, I surrender. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, You just don't fight as hard. Whereas the Canadians who, who who were already living there, they weren't too happy about it. And especially the Acadians who, you know, got, you know, put into exile, even though they, they would have been fine under the British, just don't tell us to change our religion and keep out of our business, but that they made the English too nervous, and they wanted their land. Plus
0: a lot of Scots had come to Canada, you know, I mean, and Diana's Books. They mostly go to North Carolina, although other places. But you yeah. know, Nova Scotia. She has an enormous um, sales base in Nova Scotia. I know that because we ship books there all uh-huh. the time at vast expense to Canadians. But right, so. but I did want to say that, with no spoilers, that I thought the conclusion, the final scenes of your book, are really very stirring. Yeah. And you know, if you can envision the Saint Lawrence, and if you can, uh-huh. you know. Imagine that river in full flow and what was going on. I think it makes a really dramatic um, oh, it, it, conclusion to your
1: book. Just, Very just filmable. The, you know, when I drew storyboards for the screenplay, it was oh my god, look at this. You know, this mm-hmm. city on a on a on a hillside with cliffs in front of it, and these people across the river, and the the boats going up and down, and just the impossibility of whenever you have to charge straight up a hill the the kind of casualties you're you're going to take, uh, and uh, but also that that dramatic thing of you know both the generals uh, were very good at their jobs being killed in the same battle, um, and uh, that that was pretty much it. That was pretty much okay. The French said, finally, we can leave the icebox. <laughs> you know, we we put up a good fight, and we can get out of here. And it, it's costing our country a lot of money to maintain this. We're not getting enough. You know, some people are getting rich or stealing, but you know, not well, much. The French
0: kept some their of their colonial territory. We were in French Polynesia last May, and mm. I was impressed that it's still run as a department of no, France. If they do. Yeah. Um, um, and also, there are those two little islands off the coast of Canada that are still part of Brittany. Saint Pierre and Miquelin are uh-huh. actually part of the province. Of Brittany, which was a big thing during prohibition because seagrams in canada could ship liquor to saint pierre and Miquelon, mm-hmm. which was french and then joe kennedy would send ships up uh, and run you know run uh, the booze back down uh, to boston uh, it was very interesting but when i said i thought how filmable you know the the conclusion of this book i guess the natural question would be you know are you heading it towards a movie or, or is somebody else doing it
1: you know having having written it as a screenplay and budgeting it and uh, failing to raise the money for it. Uh, to these days, I would say that the people who make those kind of things would say, "Oh, it has to be a miniseries," and it's just this economic fact that all that period stuff you amortize over a couple mm-hmm. seasons rather than one movie that kind of lives mm-hmm. or dies mm-hmm. on its opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know those days of the Gone with the Wind kind of. Super movies are mm-hmm. well. When I said ones,
0: bumble, right? I probably should have said I was actually thinking more in terms of long-term television than I was. Yeah, there's that, too much.
1: That, in that's, the book to that's a dream about. in somebody else's head, not not necessarily mine. Not necessarily. I actually think my my previous big book, uh, A Moment in the Sun, which is set during the the racial coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, and the Philippine American War, would be a lot easier. Um, you know it's it's a thousand pages long for one thing, to make several series out of mm-hmm. um but there's things like uh there really aren't any Lenny and Lenape speakers left. Mm-hmm. And you know mm-hmm. when 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 you film something, you would ordinarily do it with them speaking the language and subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard thing to do from tapes mm-hmm. that that still exist. um it's It's a tall order to do a a, a period movie. And um, some periods are more expensive than the other. Um, and, um, and actually, you know, a costumer of mine said, boy, the clothes in 1898 are beautiful. <laughs> you know, and, and movie people think about that a lot. Yes, you know, they <laughs> Like the 30s is really kind of awful,
2: you know, <laughs> yes, clothing, work, exactly.
1: um, which is why when they redid the Untouchables as a movie, they got Armani to do the suits. And nobody in the 30s looked that good in a suit. <laughs>
0: Interesting point. And Jean Harlow, they all look like they were wearing lingerie. So, yeah. you yeah. know, they satin, unstructured dresses. So, John, what is it you are working on? I assume somebody so creative as you is not simply sitting time out. So are you writing? Are you filming? What are you doing?
1: Yeah, I am. I am uh, just about done with another book that also started as a screenplay many, many moons ago. Um, This one is set at the Carlisle Indian School in 1890-91, which are the years of the Ghost Dance and the Wounded Knee Massacre. So you have uh, native kids from all over the country. Um, The Carlisle School was kind of the template for for Indian schools. And uh, the name of the book is uh, To Save the Man. Uh, Captain Pratt, who was very much a progressive in his day, uh, his idea of what to do for, for these Indian kids was, we have to get them off the reservations. We have to get them away from their culture. Um, just like black people, they're just as smart and you know just as talented as white people, but their culture is holding them back. Um, so his phrase was, to save the man, we must kill the Indian. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine the effect that had on kids coming there some of them who had, you know, their people have been around white people for for centuries and spoke English already and were very comfortable with, with you know, that idea. Others who had been waiting to kill their first buffalo. And all of a sudden they're yanked to this place. Their hair is cut off. They're told you can't speak your own language or you'll be punished. Um, so Carlisle, in some funny way, it was kind of like the Alcatraz and the Harvard of Native Americans. Um, The Alcatraz, because it was awful, people died there. There were bad diseases, there were suicides. uh, There was this psychological torture going on. Um, But the Harvard in that people from tribes that never would have met each other, met each other. Some of them married. Uh, It was one of the main places where the Pan-Indian movement that in 1924 finally got Native Americans to be American citizens. It took that long, um, came out of, a lot of it came out of Carlisle, um, but also that, that schism of, of having these kids who are, you know, for the Thanksgiving pageant, they're, they're dressing up like Indians and doing Hiawatha, you know, they're doing that poem uh, oh, at the true. time where their relatives are getting slaughtered, you know, out on the, the reservations in, in, in the Dakotas. Um, it's so a really
0: that, horrific scene in nineteen twenty three where the um, a school run by nuns in uh, Montana, and there's a young Indian girl who um, is, well, anyway, it's a it's a terrific scene, but it illustrates so much of what you're talking about is you know, she's trying to fight to retain some of her identity, and the nun is absolutely determined to beat it or. You know, kill her to get get it out of her. So it was the same thing about Mm -hmm. you know saving the saving the man by getting rid of the Indian, which was and
1: and if there's a villain in the in the piece, it is a Quaker woman uh, who has that same kind of mentality of I'm doing these people a favor. Uh, Her father was an Indian agent uh, to the Pawnee. She saw a big massacre of Pawnee people by Sioux people, and so it's And she became, uh, in the publication for for the Carlisle School, um, she became the man on the bandstand who was this kind of mysterious figure who would write in the newspaper, I see what you're doing and this is good and this is bad. And um, she kind of believed everything she did, um, Mm -hmm. but she was a horror show for these kids
0: the righteous can be truly horrendous there is no question about that let's call patrick up to see if we have questions from the audience And while he's doing that uh let me say for those of you who um, would like to read this book it's really interesting to take two characters in one seminal battle the battle of culloden in 1746 and move them to a whole new part of the world to another Mm -hmm. whole continent and so forth and they're right back in another major battle in 1759. This time in Quebec. It's only 13 years between. Uh, yeah,
1: but they've 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 also gone through a couple cultures to survive. Well, they have. And- but I'm
0: just saying that you know the pace of life you know we think we are so pacey today but think about that (laughs) in 13 years you could be bookending you know these two tremendous um there's a lot of fighting in that particular no kidding yeah (laughs) and and game-changing battles as well patrick what would you like to offer to this discussion
4: (laughs) well just you know i'm a a big fan of mr sales work and i wanted to ask you since i have you trapped here on screen Mm -hmm. a little (laughs) bit about the secret of Mm Inish and about uh about that particular film. I was telling Diana about it. Yeah. Was uh, the yeah. plays of J.M. Singh kind of informative
1: for that? Yeah, that, that, that um, was based on a children's book um, called The Secret of the Ron Moore Scary, which was set in Scotland. Um, the woman who wrote it and also did these beautiful illustrations, Rosalie K. Fry, uh, was on the Scottish coast during World War II. Mm-hmm. And because of where her cottage was, Um, they asked her to be um, a coast watcher so they gave her some binoculars and said look out for german submarines and she never saw a submarine but she saw a lot of seals Mm -hmm. and she asked the local people are there any stories about seals and they told her the sulking myth which which is something that is in both scotland and and ireland this Mm -hmm. this story of a guy who comes across this beautiful young woman and then sees her transform into a seal and eventually marries her and they have children. And there are some very sad endings to that story and some less sad endings to those stories. And she just got fascinated and, and, and made this beautiful kid's book. Uh, and it's something that uh, my wife Maggie had read when she was a little girl. And I'd always been a huge fan of the kind of pre-Disney Haley Mills movies, um, where this was this kind of plucky little girl main character and i thought it would be great to do one of those with that story knowing more and having read more of the irish island writers and stuff like that i just transposed it to ireland and we got to shoot it there um with a couple live seals um (laughs) and some animatronic ones and a great little girl and uh mostly irish but um we, we were informed while we were shooting it that we had a mixed crew and we were saying there aren't any black people on this crew and they said oh no no there's people from the south and the north of ireland on the same crew, when they're getting along so uh, we, we set a precedent that I'm, I'm proud of on that one but that was it was just a lot of fun to make um, and um, we had that wonderful situation where um, everybody on the crew liked our main kid <laughs> you know, which is always great um that she was just, that
4: john lynch right was he the one of the male leads.
1: John Lynch had only been in like one movie uh with Helen Mirren called Cal. Cal, you right. Uh, I saw that. Maybe done one or two other little things that hadn't aired yet. So he was in it. And then his sister, Susan Lynch, is a wonderful actress, was our Selkie woman. And I think that was her 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 first appearance on, on screen was in freezing cold uh Irish Sea water with a diver holding her down because she had um uh, a wetsuit on her bottom and that tends to bob you <laughs> to the surface. And so she's had to, to appear and disappear a couple times in that cold water. Yeah.
0: Terrible she got gone
1: No,
2: know
4: like v- visually just a stunning, stunning work of art. Um a favorite. Uh let's see here. You know, and it's funny, when I went out to the Aran Islands uh a number of years ago, you know, went out to the the most remote of them, I think was Inishir, you might I can't Mm -hmm. remember, but uh, as if central casting, there was a, you know, a pub and this Irish fisherman with, you know, just maroon complexion from the sun gets up and starts speaking in Irish, you know, Gaelic to the bartender. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, is this, is he paid to do that for the tourist benefit? No, it's just an amazing thing. Um, Some questions from the audience. Uh, Let's see here. Um, yeah,
1: uh, where did the title name Jamie McGillivray come from? Um the Milliga- McGillivrays were um part of a confederation of clans called Clan Chattan, the clan of the cat. And uh, their 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 you know heraldic phrase was touch not the cat. And um kind of like the Iroquois Confederacy, um they just realized if we band together, um we're going to be a lot more to deal with in a battle than if we try to do it in these little pieces. So there were probably eight or nine or more uh, different smaller clans who, who joined into that. Um, they were in the center of the line um, at the Battle of Culloden, and I kind of backed up from that fact to say, well, what if he's a mill- McGillivray? And then I, I uh, discovered that um, many of the McGillivrays had lost their ancestral land when there was uh, an uprising in 1715. Um, in Scotland, if you say the 15 or the 45, people kind of know what you mean right away. Um, so it's one of those things where you, you just get a, a scent of, this would be a good place to go. And then as I learned more about the McGillivray's, um, everything kind of um, you know clicked into, in, into place. Uh, the McGregor's, there's a, a character in it named Fergal McGregor, Because of Rob Roy McGregor and the McGregors being such a thorn in the side of the English crown, um, the name of McGregor was banned. Um, So if you went around calling yourself a McGregor, you were basically breaking the law already. So only the real badasses. Um, There was later a guy named Gregor McGregor who um, <laughs> had a big land scheme in the United States and uh stranded a lot of people and I think in North Carolina it was a place called Darien um and and to to go around calling yourself Gregor McGregor was like as bad as you can get
4: it's like macbeth macbeth
1: yeah well you don't say macbeth if you're in the theater no you, you always call it Scottish play. Scottish play.
4: Um, Stefania, our friend uh, from Italy, who tunes in, um, she says, I I imagine that you have to manage a huge amount of material to write a novel like this. Uh, How do you choose what to put in and what to leave out?
1: You know, the characters, kind of where the characters are going are going to tell you what you have to put in, Um, and also your antenna when you're, you know, I have this hard and fast rule when I'm doing something with a lot of history to it, um, that I can only do research for a week and then I have to sit down and write some fiction. Otherwise, you're just gonna lose your momentum. Um, research is so, um, you know, it's so seductive. You can just go down this rabbit hole and well, that's fascinating, that's fascinating. And you realize that you've been reading for three weeks about something that really, you're never gonna be able to haul that into your, into your story um so pretty much um your antenna starts saying i need to know this 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 and this so you might read a 350 page historical book and there's only 10 pages that just jump out at you oh that's what i wanted to know or that's interesting i'm going to go in that direction Uh, it's an interesting way
0: because i've read some of her manuscripts you might tell tell them how you handle some of them Oh, well,
3: you know, for me, I do the research uh, concurrently with the, with the fiction. Uh, and it's somewhat akin to what you're doing. I will have something in mind and I'll write it and I come to a spot where I need to know something. I have a you know, vast collection of uh, books by this point. I know where to go look for it. So I start reading that and I'll find what I need, but I will immediately see three or four other things yeah. that immediately spark different scenes and so forth. And so it just drives it in kind of a feedback loop. But yeah. I know way too many people who have spent, you know, 10 years researching the book that they're obviously never going to write.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but sometimes what you do is you're writing along and then you have a whole bunch of exes, like, you know, mm-hmm. here I am and I'll go look this up mm-hmm. when I'm out of the flow, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have, i have question marks all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be the technology of weaponry mm-hmm. or it might be what people eat or it might be, you know, I, I read the Patrick O'Brien books, mm-hmm. but I, I really, don't know the aft from the bow from the mizzen from the whatever those things are and so you know I had to really go to school on what are boats like in the 1740s and they're not brand new you know these are boats that might have been around for 50 to a, you know 80 years um but how did they get back and forth and what were the jobs on them and you know what do you call these things and um and then, you know, I, I don't necessarily remember all this stuff. So when I read it over, you know, two months later, I say, well, I, I think I did good research on this. So I'm going to say that's the right word for it. Um, but there's millions of little question marks like that. And that might be a week, you know, when you're doing your rewrite, filling in those holes and, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, I have a scene where it's a boucherie and uh, I've I've been to hog killings in the South. Mm-hmm. And um, so the names for certain things are different, but the process is basically just about the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Let's see here. Um, yeah, Dawn asks, she says, so wonderful to listen to you speak about writing novels as I am familiar with your films. How do you wade into a novel versus a 120 page script? Uh, what is, how, do, how do the
1: two processes differ? Uh, I think the main the main difference in in actually doing it is that when you're writing a screenplay, it's going to be a movie, and you have to always be aware of time. Am I fifteen minutes into the story? Am I a half hour into the story? We're halfway through this. What should the audience know? What should they want to know? What's going to come next? I'm in the last you know twenty minutes of this. How do get the pace to 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 quicken? Um whereas, you know, the minute you're writing something that's that's not a a tight little detective story that's 150 pages long, uh, you're assuming people are not going to sit down and read this thing in one sitting. Um, they're going to read some. They're going to leave. They're going to come back a day later, a couple of days later. What they're going to pick it up again. Um, so a couple of things that you you have the leisure to to walk around inside the world a little bit more without worrying about you know this this has to be. Everything has to be a cliffhanger.
2: Um,
1: if you read Moby Dick, he's got whole chapters on you know cutting a whale up and rendering it into you know whatever they into oil, um, and it doesn't exactly advance the plot, but it's kind of fascinating. You know, hey, I'm on the I'm on the ship. I'm I'm with the whalers. How does this thing work? You know, you're happy to read that. Um, but um, the other thing is that when you're writing a screenplay you know, okay, if I get to make this, I'm gonna have an art department. I'm gonna have a costumer. They're gonna go and do all kinds of research that I don't have to do for this, you know, this particular form, this 120 page script. Um, So you might say, um, uh, you know, they come into the ballroom wearing appropriate period clothes. And then it's up to somebody else to describe it. you, know, you can't do that enough. It would be nice to sometimes, but you can't do that. Enough.
4: Let's see here. um just a, a couple of general questions. um w- one is um who are some of the authors that that you admire um, and that go to for inspiration?
1: You know that it, it's i i, I as well as not taking any history classes. I, th- I think I took an English 101 class in, when I got to go to college and that was it. But I read a lot of novels. Um, and I, I think I started uh, just reading American authors and I got up to about the M's by the time that I graduated. And luckily uh, Mark Twain was under Samuel Clemens. So he was in the C's. Um, I'm just catching up with with you know classic French Zola kind of people. Uh, some of the British I'm starting to to catch up with. I haven't even gotten to the Russians yet. So a lot of it is just, you know, um, who, 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 who have I heard of that I, ha- I want to read? I just read a John le Car- Carre novel that was great. And I'll read more of his because of that. Um, when I was a kid, I actually read a lot of Elmore Leonard's Westerns before he got very well known. He was a really good Western writer. Um, I don't know, I, uh, whenever Louise Erdrich publishes something, I try to track it down and read it. Um, I'm a big fan of Zadie Smith's, um, I've read almost all of Faulkner. Um, I, I read in Spanish, so I've read a lot of, you know, Marquez and people like that in, in Spanish. Um, I've gotten to the point with my Spanish that I can tell if I like their style or not. Um, even though I still have to have a dictionary somewhere in the room when I'm, when I'm doing it. Um, so it's it's really, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Nelson Aldrin, uh, who was a kind of tough guy, Chicago writer, um, who, you know, wrote like three really good novels and some really good short stories and, and and then kind of stopped writing after a while. Um,
2: the man with the pretty, eclectic,
1: arm. pretty eclectic bunch. Um, you know, there are writers who I like sometimes like, Ernest Hemingway. There's like two of his books that I like, and then you know I just finished um, uh, *The Sun Also Rises*, and and somehow it was just like what a bunch of assholes. (laughs) Didn't like (laughs) (laughs) anybody. I
0: I really struggled (laughs) to read that book. I just gave
1: up. (laughs) Yeah, and I and then I realized okay, he doesn't really mention World War One, and most of these guys have gone through it, and that's kind of. This big elephant in the room that's behind the drinking and the, you know, nihilism and all that kind of stuff. But it was it was a tough read. Um, uh, and then there's other books of him of his where like To Have and To Have Not. Um, I like the Have Not, and the Have is really pretty badly written. Um, and you wanted to just say, "Shut up, Ernie." <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you, you you every once in a while. Uh, Peter Matheson wrote some books that I really liked. Um, but, you know, I, 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 you know, as I said, occasionally I'll get hooked on a series like the Patrick O'Brien books. And eventually, over a period of years, I think I read them all. Yeah. Um, and they're all fun. You know?
0: Can I leap up and make a book recommendation to you? A new author I have found who is yeah. Patrick O'Brien Reincarnate. His uh-huh. name is Galur, J. H. Galurncher, and he wrote a book called Hold Fast. And Captain Gray's Gambit, published by Norton, and they are
1: fabulous. Oh, good, good, great! I'll look out for them. Hold fast, do, really do. Um, we've
0: sold tons of them to people, and you know Patrick uh-huh. O'Brien readers, and they agree that they are just remarkable. Uh-huh. And he has a third one coming out this summer, so you get three.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I am in awe of people who, um, like Diana, who who can keep a series going and and not have sequelitis you know, not be just, you know, because, you know, there is this pressure to, can't you do another one of those? Can't you do another one of those? And I know having worked as a screenwriter on sequels, it's a hard thing to do when the, the original kind of, you know, comes to a a real end. Um, And, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a long time. The Godfather 2 was a very good sequel to the Godfather 1. Godfather 3 wasn't such a good sequel to it. Um, and and to be able to say, okay, this is a new book and I have to treat it as a new book and it's got to live and die as a new book even though it's related to the other ones, I, I, it's just great. Um, I I think I I don't have the attention span to stay interested in a period that long. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It's just too much fun to jump to another one.
4: Anything else, Patrick? Yeah, maybe, maybe a good question to end on. Uh, Maria says, we, okay, so we've heard John's version of uh, script writing versus novel writing. Uh, how about you, Diana? You've had the opportunity to adapt for the, the screen. What's that been um, like?
3: Well, sort of, yeah. As in, uh, I do write scripts for them, but it's a show that has multiple writers. They have a writer's room, and essentially uh, they have broken the book into multiple um, all of its separate scenes and put them on magnetic plaques and the writer's room is surrounded by whiteboards they line up their little pieces and then they all discuss you know what should be in this episode oh, we can take this and we can take this and oh, i really love that we want to have that too how are we going to join these together so uh you know essentially they can't put more than 10 percent of one of my books in an entire season yeah. so there's a lot they're going to leave out so it's very much take and choose and uh in the back of the room is the writer's assistant who is keeping track of what everybody wants and eventually from this i emerge with a beat sheet which tells me essentially what they want to happen so they give me this and i make it happen in hopefully a uh, filmable and reasonable way but you know i am not being forced to you know do the picking and choosing and that's probably a good thing because i would put in way too much (laughs) but uh, it's it's my comparison, writing a script is nothing. I mean, I can write a script in three weeks and it will be, you know, actually a decent script. They will rewrite it about eight times because they do that to all of the scripts. Yeah. And you know, every time it comes in, I'm going, no, you can't do that. But,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> and yeah. often they do a really good job too. But are there it's, any it's points where you, what I do writing a novel? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Are there any points where you want to blow the referee's whistle and say, you're getting too far from the characters?
3: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. Uh, uh-huh. They pay me to be a consultant. And so I, I give them my opinion. Yeah. And I told them starting, I said, look, I'm very blunt. I'm never mean, but you will always know exactly what I think about something because I will uh-huh. tell you. And they said, you have no idea how refreshing that is. <laughs> so anyway, we get along pretty well. But you know, we run into things where they are just determined to do something. And I say, yeah, on your head, B, A, F, A, and C. <laughs>
1: uh-huh well it, and also you you can you can run something aground if you start going mm-hmm. in the wrong direction uh, yeah, especially yeah. with mm-hmm. character what i have found when i've worked on series is that um, by about episode 5 the actors have a very strong feeling of mm-hmm. what their character would do and wouldn't that do a lot, yeah. and That's as true. they get to be you know more famous actors or whatever they have they have pretty much clout.
2: Yeah, they do. Um, they
1: can say, no, no, my my character would never do that. You know, mm-hmm. and they probably grab your book and say, see this? You
3: know. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah. Luckily, well, I get along really well with the actors.
1: Good, good.
0: Well, Patrick, that's it. That's it. Um, we've kept everybody now for a little over an hour, so um, it's hard to, sit still much longer than that.
1: So thank you, John.
0: Whatever, <laughs> thanks so much. It was a great yes. pleasure to talk thanks to you. Thanks so
1: much. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, my pleasure fun, really, really fun. enjoyed it
0: thank you again <laughs> and let me remind you again she oh, says a book yeah. selling moment see how thick it is right but this is in fact jamie mcgillivray and i'm um, just coming out in fact when did it publish was it last week or this uh
1: the 28th of february 28th of february yeah. so it really yeah. is a Two new book <laughs> yep. yeah, um, but
0: definitely recommend mm-hmm. it especially good for outlander fans mm-hmm. but actually good for any fan um who you know just loves to it's read historical fiction yeah what? <laughs> historical and you know what That's there's, a lot, history. there's <laughs> a lot of education in here for americans i think exactly. that you know where we we really should appreciate our northern neighbor and and that whole story more than mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. so this is an excellent chance to do that okay. there's a really great finale too you work your way all the way through mm-hmm. it i told anna when she yeah. was starting to read it that there's a really record finish. Oh, there is. (laughs) And indeed there is, right. So thank you, John. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, guys. Good night. Take care, Patrick. Thank Thank you,
2: Patrick.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.